You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. All right, everyone. Um, it's a little early, but I think everybody's kind of shuffled out of Clement Commons, so if it's cool with y'all, we'll go ahead and get started. Um, my name's Tucker Fleming. I'm the new Junior High Boys Youth Minister here at Advent. I started in June and um, still pretty green three months into the job, so y'all are stuck with me for the next 30 or 40 minutes, um, and I'll try and make it as painless as possible. Um, Real quick, I have a little sheet to pass around just so y'all can have something to look on. Um, It's not an outline or anything like that, but it is kind of just like playing the hits of what I'm going to be talking about today um, and just kind of the high points of of what this talk will be. So if you want to just like take one and pass it around. Um, And while you're doing that, um, Gil Cracky asked me to mention these booklets that Andrew talked about earlier this morning. there are three booklets. They're actually really well done. When Andrew um, said they were really well done, I thought surely that's like a mom telling me that her, you know, like son is the best baseball player since Miguel Cabrera. Um, but they're actually very, very nice um, and very impressive. Um, they're entitled "An Affirmation of Purpose, Priorities and Planning, and Devotions and Prayers," and they apparently lay out both broadly and in some detail. Um, kind of what this year-long visioning process has been like as a church and kind of like where we're headed in response to a lot of that. So I'm, as I'm sure you all saw walking in here, there's a big old table in Clingman Commons with a bunch of these booklets on them. So don't be shy. I think Gil is asking that every family sort of lift one of those from the table and um, kind of take a gander at them over the coming weeks. Um, and so next Sunday, which would be the 24th, I suppose, um, we as a church will start a six-week parish-wide prayer using this devotion and prayer booklet that's in the back of this set that you'll get outside. Um, and so there will be a prayer for each day over the next six weeks, etc., etc. as we pray through um, these six tenets of visioning, worship, communication, shepherding, outreach, ministry development, and discipleship. Um, and uh, apparently the dean's class today will be covering a lot of that material, especially over the next two weeks. So you can find that online if you're so inclined. Um, I wonder if, before we get started, you'd pray with me and for me real quick as we um, just kind of get ready to roll here today. Um, Father, we're thankful for this day. We're thankful for the opportunity to come together to talk about you, to learn about you. Um and to think about your work in our lives and in the lives of our students. Father, we ask that you would give us focus and deafness of hand as we chat about this. Would you help us think through what it means that you've given us a new heart um, by the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives and uh, what that means for us moving forward. Um, In your Son, Jesus Christ's holy name, we pray. Amen. Real quick, how many of y'all have kids or are like very closely involved in the life of a kid, grandparent, aunt, uncle. Okay, perfect. This is going to be great then. Um, <coughs> I um, I think in some preparation for this talk and 
like thinking through what it means to have a gospel-based identity and what it means to like over against a performance-based identity. The work of a very well-known fourth-century church father named Augustine um, comes to mind. He wrote this this book called *The City of God*, and one of the things that it is not is short, um, but it's uh, it's a helpful picture of two societies whose motivations and desires are sort of set over against one another. Um, residents of the city of God are characterized mostly by a love of God and a love of neighbor, um, a rightly ordered will or desire, we might say. And then residents of the city of man are characterized by a love of self, right? And this results in all kinds of destruction. Augustine's writing this after Rome's been sacked by the Goths and Folks are asking why this happened, sort of blaming Christianity. And Augustine says, no, the issue is love of self for most of us who are residents of the city of man. Um, And so I think that oftentimes is a very helpful picture for us to sort of think of what it means to have a gospel-based identity, an identity characterized by love of God and love of self that's been given to us by the Lord as opposed to the identity we're born with, which by nature is... A resident of the city of man is characterized by a love of self um, and a very selfish and, and sinful sort of operation. Um, <clears throat> so, fair to say, residents of the city of God have a gospel-based identity, and residents of the city of man characterized by performance-based identity. Um, and so, with that in mind, here, like in the Advent Youth Group, we use this thing called the Gospel Identity Catechism, and we know what a catechism is. Yeah, it's like a series of questions and answers that are kind of designed to like work gospel truths into the souls of folks, especially kids. Um, in the past, they've been used as preaching helps, etc., etc. Um, but the Gospel Identity Catechism is super simple. There are four questions and answers, and each question deals with the role of one person of the Trinity in the process of redemption. Um, so the questions ask things like, who does the Father say you are? Who does the Son say you are? Who does the Holy Spirit say you are? And then the final question is, who are you? Um, so they're very personal, very warm, um, and very relatable. And the one we'll be talking about today is the one regarding the Holy Spirit. Um, <clears throat> and these questions, I think, really help our kids to sort of own this identity that they have this gospel-based identity that moves them from the city of man into the city of God, and it's been bestowed upon them by the creator of the universe, really. So um, today, um, as we focus on the work of the Holy Spirit in the redemption in the lives of our kids and in our lives as well, um, the question goes, who does the Holy Spirit say you are? And the answer is one who is washed and clean. And that should be on your piece of paper. So let's try that real quick. I'll ask the question. Y'all hit me with the answer. And we'll do a little crowd participation thing. And this will be the only awkward thing I ask you to do today. Um, (coughs) Okay, so who does the Holy Spirit say you are? Man, that's beautiful. Y'all sound great. Um, Cool. Okay, so now I think as we move into the the good stuff... um, in sort of an effort to give you all a roadmap for how this will go, um, I'll talk about a concept called regeneration or the Spirit's work in our lives in the Bible. Um, then I'll quote some luminaries to help make my case. And then um, 
probably most importantly and what we'll spend most of our time on, we'll talk about what this means for our kids specifically and, in, and then in general what this means for us as well. Um, but I think before we get too, too deep in the weeds, it's probably helpful um, for us to note the importance of really grasping hold of the Lord's promise in the Holy Spirit's work in our life. Um, for us, but also for our students especially. Um, I think everybody in this room, everybody ever, especially in Western society, experiences what classical sociologists would call the looking glass self. And essentially the concept of the looking glass self is like um, me sort of like thinking through how other people would see me. Does that make sense? So like if I am walking through Clayman Commons, for example, um, whether it's in a suit or a minion costume, I am thinking like, what does X or Y or Z person who's also walking through the commons at the same time, what are they thinking of me, right? How do these folks see me? What thoughts are they having, et cetera, et cetera? What judgments are they making um, about me? And then we sort of start to form answers to those questions um, in a lot of situations. Um, uh, a couple weeks ago, I was driving down 31, the Red Mountain Expressway, on my way here, and I hit that bridge by St. Vincent's, and it was like super rainy, and I got some bald tires on the car, and of course I'm thinking like, oh, this, this is okay, it's the summer, like we'll be fine, I'll just like make it to the school year, and we'll like put some new tires on this thing, and um, you know, in my infinite wisdom, and then like the rain kind of comes down that bridge, and it's a slick bridge, and then you hydroplane all over, and next thing I know, like the coffee that used to be in my hand is no longer in my hand. It's now all over the side of my shirt, right? So like as I'm walking through church with a sort of <coughs> brown stained shirt, I'm really engaging in this looking glass self, right? I'm thinking like, man, these probably, these people probably think I woke up at like eight o'clock and I like zoomed over here and like spilled my coffee out the door. Some of which is probably true, right? Um, or right. If, if things go differently, if I make the smart call to switch those tires, the coffee's still in the mug. We're in good shape. I'm walking through here and feeling pretty good about myself and thinking, all oh, these people probably at least think I'm to some extent put together, right? That I at least in some way or another like tied my shoes correctly this morning. Um, and positive or negative, the looking glass self is never a super helpful thing, especially for our kids, because if it's if if we weigh ourselves in the balance, we're always found wanting. Whether the assessment is positive or negative, whether it's um, I got this big coffee stain and people probably think I'm a mess, or ties on straight, shoes are tied and double knotted, haven't tripped over myself yet today. Um, it's always self-critical. You've always placed yourself. Um, in the mirror, you put yourself on the scale. And that's never a fun place to be because there's always a chance you lose that game. You know what I'm saying? Like there's always a chance um, that even on the most positive of days, something in your control happens, right? You engage in some kind of performance that's not quite up to snuff. And I think this is the crux of the issue with a performance-based identity is that we're always trying to measure up 
right? To our own expectations, to others' expectations, to our mother's expectations, to our boss's expectations, to our teacher's expectations. That's not always bad, but when that's the ultimate expectation, it's not super productive. And so um, with that in mind, I think that's a specific issue for our kids today because the issue is not necessarily when I see folks at work every morning or when I see, you know, my good friend from college who I like sort of have this like low key competition with to see like where we are in life stages at this point. It's like every second our kids, whether through Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or Snapchat or AOL Instant Messenger, probably not Instant Messenger, but, um, you know, through all these things, like in real time, they see all their peers performing, right? And like how often do we put the coffee stain shirt on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter? Probably never. I never have. Um, and so there's always kind of, you know, the like the performance deficit when kids are looking at their buddies on these social media outlets and they are never measuring up, right? Like they're always weighing themselves in the scale and finding themselves wanting, right? Because, for example, Jimmy's riding to school, right? First day of school, <coughs> things are going well. Um, you know, blue shirt's dirty, and that's the lucky shirt, so we had to go with a pink shirt. But in general, everything's okay. Um, not terrible, but... Somewhere in the kiss-and-go line, Jimmy's realized he's got a cereal milk stain, you know, on his face or on his shirt or somewhere. He's forgotten something. Um, and at that point, day's kind of shot, right? It's ruined. First day of school, here to make an impression, to perform, and something's gone wrong, right? Um, now, Jimmy gets to first period, and... He gets on Instagram. The teacher's not in there. Jimmy's a good kid. He wouldn't be on Instagram when the teacher's in the classroom. But um, the teacher's not there yet, and Jimmy's checking out Instagram. And he sees a couple buddies of his who have a different first period class have, like, posted a picture of themselves. And they've got the, like, fresh press shirt. No milk stains for them. Um, their shoes are tied. Everything's good. They're smiling, and they look like they have a great time. And Jimmy is thinking, my milk stain compared to this who wins right like we're weighing our performance because um there's an identity that's based strictly off of the accomplishments and the achievements of the everyday right this is not just did i make the lacrosse team it's like how am i looking on a day-to-day -day basis sort of thing it's a constant constant issue and i think that's probably exacerbated um by the general accessibility of social media um, <clears throat> now when Jimmy looks at this picture of his buddies, what he doesn't see is the 45 minutes it took them to pick out those outfits this morning and probably the 45 tears that were cried and, you know, trying to figure out how to press the pants just right, et cetera, et cetera. Um, all he sees is the outcome, right? Not the struggle. All he sees is the final performance, whereas he's privy on his end from start to finish. Um... And so the looking glass self is always asking the question, am I performing? The performance-based identity is always asking the question, am I making the right plays? Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Am I meeting the expectations of the culture around me? 
and the gospel-based identity over against the performance-based identity um, make statements instead of ask questions. Um, it says, Jesus has already performed for me, and Jesus has already made the cut for me, um, and the Holy Spirit's guaranteed that to me, and the Father calls me a son or daughter because of that. I need not perform. I, we're going to talk about this in a little bit, but like the the performance-based identity is not of ultimate importance anymore. Performance still important, but not of ultimate importance because at the end of the day, Jesus has done for me everything I needed to be done and that I couldn't do for myself. Does that make sense? All right, I'm going to stop here, ask if y'all have any questions, or we can keep moving if you don't. Huh? Okay. Um, cool. So I think with that in mind... Um, we'll probably jump straight into this like biblical concept of regeneration proper. Um, Titus three five is probably the flagship verse for regeneration. Um, that should be on your paper. Regeneration really is a um, that's a term you'd find in the index of a systematic theology book. Um, less, I mean, it's important. It's in the Bible, but the concept is is a, is a term that you'd find in a in a Dictionary of Theological Terms. It's really um, probably the best way to describe it is to talk about like the Holy Spirit's removal of our heart of flesh, our like sinful heart that we're born with, and replacing it, or our, our heart of stone, excuse me, replacing it. Messier. Um, Performance-based identity, right? Um, so, and replacing it with that heart of flesh, Ezekiel 36, etc., and so, uh, essentially, a regeneration, if you will. I know we're not supposed to use words in their own definition, but um, that's probably the best way to think of it. Um, so Titus 3.5 mentions regeneration as follows. Um, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Um what kind of images are we seeing here? Like, what kind of images does Paul use in this letter to Titus? Like, what are some of the the word pictures that we see in that one verse? I think one of the like most poignant for me is the image of washing, right? The kind of renewal, the making new of of every believer, right? I think um, this is not something Paul's talking about that just kind of happens to Titus and it happens to Timothy and it happens to the 12 boys running around with Jesus. You know, like this is something that happens in the life of every believer, Um and these images, washing, regeneration, renewal, recreation in general, um, they're all images with a really rich biblical history. Um, I think the verse that comes to mind most is when we look back at Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27-ish, which also should be on your paper if you want to follow along. Um, we see super similar images, right? In verse 25, Ezekiel says, or God says through Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. 
and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. (coughs) So, here we see images of renewal, of recreation, of water, sprinkling of clean water. And I think the, the thought, the picture of God washing his people with clean water means a ton to the people Ezekiel's chatting with. Right at this point, they're sort of under the thumb of the Babylonians. They're in exile. Things are not going well for the people of Israel. Right? They were made this promise back in Genesis 12 with Abraham. And just when things start to get going well, it seems like something terrible happens to these people. Right? They, um, they get close to taking the land and they get scared. They don't go in. Right? Um, they get into Egypt, right? Joseph goes up really high in the, the hierarchy of the Pharaoh. He's like second in, second in command in Egypt. Um, Abraham's descendants are really, and it, Jacob and his family are enjoying this like choice land. And then we get a new Pharaoh who forgets these folks and enslaves them. We make it across the Red Sea. God provides for us, and then we wander for 40 years, right? We finally get to the land. And then we set up some other idols and we start worshiping some other gods, thinking this won't be a problem, but always is. And then the Israelites are exiled. And then they're brought back and they're exiled again. And um, there's this kind of vicious cycle for the Israelites of blessing and curse, blessing and curse, blessing and curse. But the curse is never arbitrary, right? It's because the people of Israel have totally failed to follow God's commandments. They've sinned in the face of the Lord. Um, and so for these people in exile, um, especially those Israelites who are a part of you know, what we might call the faithful remnant, um, the Israelites who have not stopped worshiping the true God, these are super encouraging words because right now they're suffering under their own sin and under the, the consequences of their own sin. And God says to his people, There's coming a time when I will sprinkle clean water on you and when I will make you clean and when you will no longer have to follow these 613 Mosaic laws to try and make yourself clean. I am sending myself to come and sprinkle you with clean water to renew you from all your uncleannesses and to cleanse you from all your idols and from all your sins. Um, Obviously, I'm not a 5th century B.C. Israelite, but I can only imagine um, what kind of hopeful message that would have been because I think even today for me that is a massively hopeful message um, insofar as it's still applicable to us today. Um, these images, the uh, the trashing of the old heart the um, and the giving of a new present in both the Titus and the Ezekiel verse um, they both describe the work of the Spirit in our lives, right? Especially the Ezekiel verse, um, removing our heart of stone and replacing with our heart of flesh. Um, so these images lead <clears throat> J.I. Packer, the British Anglican theologian, to define regeneration thus. The spiritual change wrought in the heart of man by the Holy Spirit in which his or her inherently sinful nature 
is changed so that he or she can respond to God in faith. It is an inner recreating of fallen human nature by the gracious, sovereign action of the Holy Spirit. So, essentially, we're seeing a lot of words that really just describe that Ezekiel verse, that recreation, that regeneration, that um, when the Lord brings us back to himself, the Holy Spirit performs in us. Um, J.I. Packer keeps talking, keeps talking, and he then notes the decisiveness of the Holy Spirit's work in regeneration. He says, The regenerate man has forever ceased to be the man he was, or woman. Um, His old life is over, and a new life has begun. He is a new creature in Christ, buried with him out of reach of condemnation, and raised with him into a new life of righteousness. Um, I think probably the most really poignant illustration there is when the Holy Spirit regenerates us, when the Holy Spirit works in our lives upon um, conversion, He buries us with Christ out of reach of condemnation, right? Um, Our identity is no longer tied to our performance, right? We're out of reach of any condemnation for failure um, that we might receive. Rather, we've been raised with Christ to a new life of righteousness. Um, Amen. So, the Holy Spirit's work in regeneration really is a complete transformation of us as persons. Um, it, it Not only does it change sort of um, who we are, not only does it rightly order our desires and our will um, away from the things that characterize the city of man to the things that characterize the city of God, right? We're not f- just free from sin to good works out of love of God and love of our neighbor. Um, it changes our standing before God. Um, we, I don't want to steal Cameron's thunder when he comes in here and talks about justification, but when the Holy Spirit gives us a new heart, um, in that work, the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ. And so when the Father looks at us, he doesn't see us and in our incomplete works. He sees Jesus in that life of complete obedience and that death that pays the curse for us. Um, it changes our standing before the Father. Um, and it throws our lot in with the Son, um, burying us with Him out of reach of condemnation and raising us with Him to a new life of righteousness. Um, <coughs> when the Holy Spirit regenerates us and takes our heart of stone, right, tosses it into the quarry, and gives us a heart of flesh, He doesn't hook us up with His heart of flesh that's only like half flesh and half empty that needs to be filled up with good works of like condign and congruent merit, you know. He doesn't give us a heart that's half flesh and half stone and say, all right, you know, go soften the other half. He totally regenerates us, asking for no performance in return. Um, Asking for no accomplishment, no achievement in return. Now, of course, this regenerate heart will perform works that are holy to God, but um, that is not the ground of what makes us righteous before God, but rather the fruit, you might say, Um, upon regeneration instead of weighing our performance in the scales and finding us wanting because we are so wanting um, he weighs the performance of his son in our place Um, and so when the creator of the universe the only one to whom we're truly accountable right not 
not our boss ultimately, not our parents ultimately, not, not our buddies on Instagram ultimately. The only one to whom we are truly accountable declares us lovely, pure, clean, washed, um, and all those wonderful images. A certain liberation takes place at that point. Does that make sense? Like there's a certain freedom that comes with that regeneration and we start to care less about what our friends look like on Instagram. We start to care less about um, our performance in front of people, um, et cetera, et cetera. Our justification, our grades goes away. This is something that I need to remind myself of every December and May. Um, <clears throat> and our performance on the football field or in the dance studio is no longer what comprises our identity as people anymore. Um, what we do find our justification is in instead of performance in the dance studio or on the football field or in the classroom or in the workplace is the work of Christ dying for our sins applied to us by the Holy Spirit in regeneration. Um, and so in that moment, I think when we kind of grasp hold of Christ's work for us, the Holy Spirit tells us and he tells our students you are enough, right? This, you know, whatever performance you're trying to pile up for yourself, that's wonderful. But with or without that, you are enough. Um, I think that's big, big for kids to hear. It's big for me to hear, especially. Um, another thing to note also is that this work comes from completely outside of us. Um, we do not do anything. We don't hit some buttons on a keypad or do anything else that sort of earns the Holy Spirit's work in our life. <clears throat> Titus 3.5 says, Not because of works done by us, even those done in righteousness, but according to God's mercy um, is what gives us that new heart, that new freedom, that new standing before God. Um, so this, I think, friends, is the crux of a gospel-based identity. Um, not because of me, not because of my performance, but rather because of God and of his performance. Um, and what's especially important, namely when students are in view, is that if this re regeneration comes from outside of you, if you've done nothing to earn it, then certainly you can do nothing to lose it, right? A 10-yard loss on the football field on Thursday night when you fell during the dance recital, none of that has lost your justification in the eyes of the Lord. Um, unfortunately, the world doesn't tell us that, and it certainly doesn't tell our kids that either. Um, today, I think most of our students sort of live and move and have their being in what we might call a shame culture. Um, so, and not, not only a shame culture, a culture that's sort of built off of like, um, shame and success, right? Like shame and performance. And if, if we don't perform, then there's this sort of like black cloud that hangs over us. Like we haven't quite made the cut. Um, it's a culture of ridiculous polarity. Um, and so I think a lot of our students probably walk through the day, um, feeling like there are two extremes and there's an excluded middle, right? There is perfect and there's worthless. There's totally clean and horribly filthy. There's no in-between, right? There's a zero or there's a 100. There's a first string or there's off the team. Um, this kind of cultural influence, I think, puts kids in a situation where they feel like they can't fail. Um, 
And it doesn't take a ton of John Maxwell and Peter Drucker books to tell you that if people, especially a kid, feels like they have that if they fail, they're done. Um, kids will be wary of opportunities at best and mortified of opportunities at worst. And that is something that trickles into relationships, in families, in school, on the team, in church. Um, and so when we fail and when young folks fail, they see themselves through that looking glass self, through that performance-based identity as unqualified to be loved, to be cared for. They see themselves as sort of shameful, as sort of filthy. There's a stain that they've contracted. Um, and they ask questions like, what have I done to earn this affection? What have I done to earn this love? What have I done to earn this acceptance? Probably is the most prominent question. Um, <clears throat> and no matter what the answer is, even if it's a positive answer, it always comes with a mortifying memory of several mistakes you've made that might change the answer to that question. Um, but what the Spirit does in regeneration over against the work of a performance-based identity is to wash these students and to wash us with the cleansing blood of Christ to make them clean and to make sure they know they're loved and that they can't do anything to lose that love, right? Um, all the stains we've contracted and all the stains our kids have contracted from mistakes they've made or sins they've committed um, are washed clean by the Spirit's work in their lives by the Spirit's removal of that heart of stone and putting into that heart of flesh. And um, <clears throat> so at this point, as, uh, as we tie all these things together and start to conclude, I think it's important to us, for us to ask, with all this in mind, what does that mean for our kids? What does that mean for our students on a day-to-day -day basis? Um, what does it mean that the Holy Spirit says that our kids are washed and clean? What's the practical import of that? And I think there's probably a twofold answer to this question. Um, so negatively, it means that our students cannot, should not find their justification in anything outside of who the Lord says they are and the work the Lord's done on their behalf. Um, and positively, it means that the Holy Spirit gives them that which they need to be justified, to feel secure, to know that they're washed and clean in the sight of God. Um, he gives them a new heart and he joins them to Christ so that they can lay hold of all of his benefits. Martin Luther talks a lot about thinking of Christ as gift and example. And um, for Luther, we have to think of Christ as gift before we can ever imagine thinking of him as example. Um, and the Holy Spirit's work in regeneration in the lives of our kids grasps Christ as gift and with it the benefits of his life lived for them to cover their debt under the law and his bearing of the curse of the law in his death. And so I think the washing of regeneration, um, the Holy Spirit's work in the lives of our kids um, really puts our kids in a position to know that in the final analysis Justification need not be found in the opinions of the larger culture that they kind of swim around in on a daily basis, but rather um, that they're good enough for the Lord 
not because of anything they've done, but because of who the Lord says they are and what, what God's done for them. Um, and in, in the final analysis, right, um, when this earth and these heavens pass away, um, when Jesus returns, these 77 plus or minus a few years and all the opinions of society that have come with them um, will not weigh very heavily in the final analysis. Um, I think that's sometimes a little hard for middle schoolers and high schoolers to grasp. Um, it's hard for me to grasp, but I think that's what the Lord tells us is true. Um, and I think when we think about it, that's what we know to be the case as well. Um, so now, of course, like I don't want you all to hear me wrong. This does not mean that your kids should not care about grades or that they should not care about sports or that they should not care about performing well. Um, that, uh, you know, that all those things just totally go by the wayside. We can just kind of sit on the couch and drink Pepsi and play Call of Duty all day. And, you know, like, well, unfortunately, I think. Um, <laughs> what it does mean, though, I think, is that those desires to perform um, become rightly ordered when the Holy Spirit works in our lives. Um, the Holy Spirit gives us a nature that allows us to work heartily as unto the Lord. Um, we work not for our own benefit, but we work almost as witness to the society around us that um, when that 85 comes back on a history test instead of 100, that we find our justification in the Lord and we understand I worked hard to glorify God. And if I didn't make the cut, I didn't make the cut, but I'm going to go home and wake up tomorrow, God willing, and the Holy Spirit will have worked in my life and Jesus' sacrifice for me is no different than it was the day prior. Um, I think, you know, when, when we take that sack, when we fall at the dance recital, um, our emotional health isn't affected for weeks at a time. Um, it's certainly okay to be sad at, at a poor performance or sad when um, something doesn't go our way or, or re- repentful when, when we commit sin. Um, but what it does mean is that we have no reason to be ultimately sad. What it does mean is that there's a light at the end of the tunnel, right? And that um, whether or not we perform wonderfully or not, um, Christ is still coming back to make all things new. Um, so that's all I have. We've got about five minutes left. If y'all have questions or we can dialogue a little bit or y'all can tell me if that sounds about like what your kids deal with on a day-to-day basis or or not. Yes. You know, social media is just so different. Sure. Um, so in one way, I wonder if the kids are, um, it, it's harder for them to buy in. Right. That it matters because they're seeing like the Christmas card effect every day on yeah. social media. But then in a, another way, I almost wonder if they're more, they need it almost more than we do growing up. So do you see that they're like, it takes them longer to really buy into it or do, are they hungrier for it? Um. Yeah, I think I think that's a really good question. My hunch is that it probably varies um, from kid to kid and family situation to family situation. Um, but I think I think that's like you're probably right. My my guess would be that our kids need the gospel more. That's what you're. Right. Yeah. So right, it's always around them. It's not like you know they just spend six or seven hours at school 
and they see, you know, kids making, you know, achieving things that they're not or um, et cetera, et cetera. It's that all the time when they are in school, when they leave school over winter break because it's so accessible. That would be my guess, but I don't. It's just so different. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'm, it's been seven years since I was in high school, and it's, it's even in half a decade is still crazy, you know, how much things have, have progressed. Before I moved here, I worked in a high school in Northern California, um, and kids always were, like, comparing themselves to one another, um, especially after winter break. I think it's a Title I school, very low-income folks, and they were all, it was always very bizarre to have to kind of, like, play a dual role and say, like, you know, for, especially for kids who couldn't buy the things to sort of like feed that performance-based identity. Um, you know, that was very much something that was evident to them in a way that probably it wouldn't have been a decade or so ago. If there are no more questions, I'll pray for us, and then I'll let you go get your rug rats. Um, Father, thank you for the for today. Thank you um, for speaking into our lives, and thank you for working in our lives, replacing our hearts of stone with a heart of flesh. Father, we're thankful for your work every day, um, and we appreciate that. Please help us um, to love you more in light of that, um, and to work heartily as unto you. Uh, in your Son Jesus Christ's holy name, we pray. Amen. 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 Don't forget those booklets. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.